0: Saul rejects God. Saul continues to fall short in his role over king of Israel. And so this passage begins with Samuel reminding Saul that he has been appointed by God to be king and thus is accountable to God. Verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over the people of Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Samuel gives Saul a clearly defined task given to him from God. Saul is to completely destroy the Amalekites and all that belongs to them. That's found in verse 3. The reason for the destruction of the Amalekites is their past destructiveness of the children of Israel. If you notice verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way When they came out of Egypt. That event is more fully described in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 17 and following. And I'll read that passage. It says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way. When you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Therefore when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you. In the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Many years have passed from that particular event. Amalek has continued in its downward and uh, sinful opposition to Israel. And so now God in his justice is going to command Saul uh, to be an instrument of that justice in destroying the Amalekites. Therefore, Saul prepares to go to war against the Amalekites in verse 4. So Saul summoned the people, numbered them in Telam, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah, and Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. The Kenites were given opportunity to distance themselves from the Amalekites since they were innocent of the offense committed against Israel. That's found in verse six. The Kenites do indeed separate themselves from the Amalekites, as you find at the end of verse six. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Saul soundly defeats them in verse seven. However, in disobedience, Saul spares Agag and the best of the sheep instead of destroying them as God had commanded, verses eight and nine. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So now God reveals to Samuel that God is displeased with Saul's kingship. The point is that Samuel's confrontation with Saul originates with God and not with Samuel. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. And God expresses his displeasure in Saul's kingship. Verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king. I regretted that I made Saul king. That's repeated again at the end of verse 35. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. King James translates that, he, God repents that he had set up Saul to be king. And in the NIV, it is, I am grieved. This word means to be grieved or to lament. It pains the Lord. Now, I'm going to go into a little bit of a uh, diatribe this morning on what it means for the Lord to repent. What does it mean for the Lord to have regrets? Because I think that creates uh, questions in the minds of some. So how do we understand the idea that God regrets making Saul king? Did God make a mistake? Was he taken by surprise? Did he not know what Saul would do? Well, why does God have regrets? Well, some theologians explain it by saying this is an anthropathicism. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's start with a word that perhaps is a little more familiar to you, and that is an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is when you ascribe physical characteristics to God that God does not possess. God is a spirit. But the Bible often describes God using human terms so that we have a better understanding of who God is. For example, the scripture will talk about the works of God's hands. Or sitting at the feet of the throne of God. God doesn't have feet. God doesn't have hands. That's an anthropomorphism. That is ascribing to God characteristics that men have, but God does not. So some understand this as an anthropophacism, meaning these are emotions that man has, but God does not. And there are many that would deny the fact that God, in fact, does have emotions. However, God is a person, and God does have emotion, will, and intellect. So when the Bible speaks of God's emotions, they are very real emotions that God actually experiences. But that doesn't end the problem. For what complicates the matter still further is the contradictory statement that's found in 1 Samuel 15, 29. If you look at 1 Samuel 15, 29, it states, and the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. The word for regret in verse 29 is the exact same Hebrew word that's found in verse 11 and verse 35. In verse, 30, verse 11 it says, I regret, referring to God, that I have made Saul king. 1 Samuel 15:35. The end of verse 35 says, the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Twice it says the Lord regretted. Then you have in verse 29, it says that God is not a man that he should regret. So how do you reconcile those two contradictory ideas? Let me give you an analogy. God has communicable attributes. That is, he shares in common with mankind that he has created in his image certain attributes. For example, wisdom power, and knowledge, just to mention a few. God is wise, we are wise. God is powerful, we are powerful. God is knowledgeable, we are knowledgeable. We are made in his image. But God's attributes are far superior than the attributes found in man. God is all-knowing, God is all-wise, God is all-powerful, and certainly we are not. So God's attributes are far beyond our attributes. And further, of course, they are not tainted by sin, where our attributes are tainted by sin. In like manner, mankind has emotions that are derived from the creator God. That's a part of our being made in the image of God. We have emotions just as God has emotions. But just as his Other attributes are far superior to ours, so are God's emotions. They are of a pure character. They are not tainted by sin, to be sure. And they do not demonstrate any limitations. Just as God is all-knowing, in his attributes of love and care and, yes, regret, he is perfect in the demonstration of those emotions. So let me unpack that still a little more. And uh, we're giving you just uh, a flyover of what is an extremely uh, deep and uh, important subject. But thus the emotion that God feels when removing Saul from kingship is a real emotion. He really does lament. He really is grieved. So how can God lament a decision that is wise, holy, and just? How is God's regret different from mankind's regret? Well, let me begin by talking about how it is similar. One can lament disciplining a child even when it is right, just, and the holy thing to do. You can discipline your child and know that that is right. That is what you need to do and at the same time have a sense of compassion, have a sense of genuine concern for that child, and know the misery and the heartache that is being produced in the life of that child, even though it's the right thing to do. When God has that regret, he's having compassion. He's having mercy, even though he knows that it's the right thing to do. And as he looks upon Saul... God's heart is broken over Saul's disobedience. And God's heart is broken over the ramifications that Saul's kingship has for Israel. But it was the right thing for God to make him king, and it was the right thing for God to remove him as king. So we move to the reason for God's displeasure with Saul. Verse 11. It says, I regret that I made Saul king, and here's the reason. For he has turned back from following me he has not performed my commandments. It is not only a matter of God's authority that is being rejected, it is God's wisdom and goodness that is being rejected. Saul turned aside from following God. Saul chartered his own course. He decided to go his own way he decided that it was better to not to listen to God than to listen to God. And it is always to our own hurt and detriment when we turn away from God. And so God in his compassion feels for the ensuing misery that it results from our own disobedience. Samuel expresses God's response and makes an announcement concerning Saul. First, Samuel burns in his anger towards Saul, verse 11. And I regret that I made Saul king, for he was turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And now we have Samuel's response, and Samuel was angry. Samuel was angry towards Saul. But Samuel's anger was a righteous anger. It was a holy anger. For he was angered at Saul's audacity to bring a reproach to the name of God. And he was angered by what Saul's rebellion was going to create in the nation of Israel. He was such a poor leader that it just angered him that Saul would act in that way. And at the same time, Samuel is grieved over Saul. If you notice in verse 11, it says, And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And we might wonder what he cried for. It doesn't tell us specifically at that point what it was that he prayed to God concerning all night long. But if you look at verse 35, it says, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. So he's angry. But it wasn't hatred. It wasn't vengeful. He was grieved. He was grieved. And that's how we should respond to those that are bringing reproach and degeneration against God. It should make us angry. When people are demeaning our God. But at the same time we should not lose a spirit of compassion and concern for those very same people and realize the misery they're bringing to their own lives and the lives of others. So now Samuel confronts Saul and announces that Saul has been rejected as king. Saul, in a great demonstration of pride, had established a lasting memorial to his own praise for victory over the Amalekites. Verse 12, an extremely important verse. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning And I was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And here is our word in 1 Samuel that I keep telling you to look for. And here it is. Behold! Behold! Look at this. Think about this. Don't miss this. Behold! He set up a monument for himself. And turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Saul created a monument to his own glory in the feet of his enemies. Nothing like this had ever been done before in the nation of Israel. They'd had great leaders. They had Moses, they had Joshua. They had great defeats, but never a memorial to a person. They were memorials to God. And now there's a reference to Gilgal. And we looked at that memorial that was established of the 12 stones that were taken out of the River, so they would not forget what God had done when they were able to cross the Jordan River on dry ground. But here is Saul making a memorial to himself. Saul loved the praise of men, and he loved to take credit for what others had done. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, just listen to this. Uh, It says that Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. It was Jonathan who actually accomplished the defeat. Now it was under the reign of Saul, but Saul takes all the credit. And Saul proclaims himself as this great victor and Jonathan's name is not mentioned. It was a striking contrast to having this memorial at Gilgal, and now this memorial that Saul establishes for himself at Mount Carmel. I think that this perhaps is not so striking to us because in our own country we have monuments and statues created to commemorate great leaders. Let me remind you that these were not built by the leaders themselves and not in their own lifetime. For example, the Washington Monument was built in 1848, approximately 100 years after the death of George Washington as a tribute to George Washington's military leadership from 1775 to 1783. In a similar fashion, the Lincoln Memorial was begun in 1914, completed in 1922, Abraham Lincoln died approximately 50 years earlier. These were not leaders that sought memorials for themselves. But this was a monument established by Saul himself in his own lifetime to his own honor and glory. His arrogance was great and continued to grow. And it would be his downfall. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, there is an account of the women of Israel responding to a great military victory that Saul and David had had. And in 1 Samuel chapter 18, it says this. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And of course, Saul is going to be seeking David and wants to take David's very life. It was his jealousy. It was his ego. It was his ambition. Beware of leaders' ego, for it leads to destructiveness. It leads to a comparison. It leads to trying to downgrade other leaders and exalt themselves as being the greatest leader of all time. And it's destructive to people, and it's destructive to a nation. And that's what we're to learn from this particular passage in Saul's ambition and God's removing him from kingship. When Saul and Samuel meet, Saul speaks first, almost in a preemptive strike. Saul states that he has done what God has asked of him in verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Of course, Saul had not done what God commanded him to do. So Samuel says, Why then am I hearing sheep? if they've all been destroyed, verse 14. Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the roaring of oxen I hear? If you did everything God told you to do, why are these sheep are alive? Saul now seeks to distance himself from the people and blame them. His assertion is that he obeyed the Lord, but they did not. He's throwing the entire nation of Israel under the bus. And he's saying, it's their fault, it's not my fault, verse 15. Saul said, and these prepositions are important, Saul, I mean, excuse me, these uh, pronouns are important. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest. We have devoted the rest to destruction. They disobeyed you but me and the people that did the right thing we obeyed you samuel won't have any of that then samuel said to saul stop just stop i don't want to hear any more of this uh, enough of your foolishness he says i will tell you what the lord said to me this night and he said to him speak Samuel confronts Saul over his newly developed pride. Verse 17, Samuel said, though you were little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribe of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. That's referring to the, the time period in which he was originally anointed. When he was originally anointed, he was indeed humble. But over the years, he had developed a great pride. That's why 1 Samuel 17 reads in the NES, Samuel said, is it not true Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribe of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. So Samuel goes on to demonstrate that Saul has nothing to brag about, verses 18 and 19. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And the "you" in verses eight and verse nineteen are singular; they're not in the plural. When he says "you," he's not talking about the people, he's not talking about the army, he's not talking about the nation of Israel. Saul is a, Samuel is addressing Saul. You. You personally. You did this. You did this. Saul continues to defend himself and refuses to take responsibility for his sinfulness. Uh, He will not give up that easily. And this is extremely striking. So uh, notice verses 20 and 21. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil. So he's back to the same thing. I, I, I did what was right. The people did what was wrong. It was them. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. What I've done is right. And then, Saul goes on to intimate that the people had the best of intentions with which no one could possibly find fault. Notice verse 21. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction. Why? To sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. The people, they spared these sheep and oxen in order to To make a sacrifice to God. So how can you find fault with that? How can God be upset when we spared these sheep to offer a sacrifice to God? Well, first of all, that wasn't true. Because they spared a whole lot more than just those that were being. But that's the way presenting issues are. That's what happens. People lie. This is a lie. But nonetheless, Samuel addresses what is presented to him and says that God delights not in the sacrifices, but rather delights in obedience, verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, says this, and I quote, Samuel negates sacrifice, not absolutely, but relatively. He is saying that formal worship cannot be substituted for obedient life. External devotions for internal submission. Your Gloria Patri, Apostles' Creed, Christian luncheons, and also our Bible conferences, none of these matter unless you are keeping Christ's commandments. Real worship is obedience. Real worship is not simply saying praise the Lord. Real worship isn't saying the right thing. Real worship is doing the right thing. That's when we really acknowledge his lordship in our lives. Talk is cheap. And there are so many places in scripture where it says, they draw near to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. What God looks for is obedience. Obedience. Why is obedience so important? Verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Samuel assumes that sin must be rightly identified. Not listening to God's voice is not simply a failure or misunderstanding but rebellion and arrogance. And properly compared, it is the same category as sheer pagan idolatry. It is making ourselves God rather than having God as God. When we choose to go our own way, it is, in fact, a worship of self. Of which Saul had now become grossly, grossly, engaged in, in his pride and his arrogance. He was rejecting God's authority over his life. Saul's legacy is not what he thinks it will be. There's a great irony here. The memorial that Saul had built to himself will fail. Saul will not be remembered for his military exploits, but rather the way his kingship comes to an end. And to verse verse 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So he is not going to be able to be king uh, as long as he would have. Saul gives a half-hearted confession. Saul admits his sinfulness, but makes an additional excuse. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He's saying, well, it's true, I disobeyed, but it's because of the people. (laughs) I was afraid of them. I listened to them. I did what they wanted to be done. So he's moved. But he hasn't moved to where he needs to be moved. And that is taking full responsibility for his actions. To fear man is no excuse in the scriptures. In fact, the admonition is to fear God and not to fear man. Saul asks forgiveness and seeks Samuel's continued public support. Verse 25, now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Samuel will not continue to support Saul, however. Verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Saul has chosen to reject God's authority. Therefore he will reject Saul from a place of authority. Verse 26, for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. In desperation, Saul tries to hold on to his kingdom and thus hold on to Samuel. Verse 27, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it's tore. So as Samuel is departing, Saul reaches out and just grabs him because he doesn't want him to leave. He doesn't want to lose his kingdom. He doesn't want to be dishonored before the people. And as he reaches out and grabs it, it, it tears. And Samuel uses this as a teaching moment. God has ripped the kingdom from Saul's hand, verse 28. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours, that, of course, is David, who is better than you. This day, this day. What does that mean? Well, just as there was a period of time from Saul's initial uh, anointing to be king from the time that he actually became king, so there's going to be a, a period of time in which Saul is announced that his kingdom comes to an end from the time that it actually does come to an end. But everything from now on is just leading up to the end. Everything else now that we are going to experience is a result of this decision of part of God to take the kingdom away from Saul and give it to David. And all of Saul's chasing after David and trying to get him killed and all these other things are a result of Saul's lack of repentance and submitting to the authority of God and to acknowledge his own sin and to admit the appropriateness of removing him as king. And Saul is going to fight against this for the rest of his life. And of course, his life will come to an end. The final response. First, Saul's final response. Verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. This time, Samuel acquiesces to Saul's request. Verse 31, so Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. What do we understand by that? Well, Samuel does not know if Saul's repentance is genuine or not. He does not know that Saul's kingdom, uh, excuse me, he does know that Saul's kingdom will not be restored to him, but nonetheless, he does not know if there is a sense in which he could actually be seeking God's forgiveness. Saul does not lastingly repent and does not submit ultimately to the will of God. For the rest of his kingship, he will be trying to destroy David as a means of holding on to his kingship. Samuel's final response. First, Samuel does what Saul should have done, verse 32 and 33. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past." And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord Gilgal. So he does what Saul failed to do. Next, Samuel goes home and completely distances himself from Saul, verses 34 and 35. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. So the relationship with Samuel is completely broken as a result of this. It also means that God never sends Samuel to Saul again. God never sends Samuel to Saul again. And that's one of the great devastations to Saul's kingship, and to the nation of Israel. In his refusal to listen to the word of God, God removes the word from him. There are warnings time and time again in Scripture, especially in the book of Jeremiah. To turn your back on the word of God will mean that ultimately the word of God will be taken from you. That if you are not going to honor his word, you will take it. He will take it. However, Samuel still has heartache over Saul and the nation, Verse 35, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And then God continues to be grieved over Saul's kingship in the end of verse 35, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Saul will be continually doing those things which breaks the heart of God. He's grieved. Yet God is very long-suffering and gracious to Saul and to the nation. Saul will meet with a number of military successes that we will see. However, those successes do not bring the advancement to the nation that they appear to be. Just because Saul wins some battles doesn't mean that God is pleased. God has already declared himself. And these battles are simply preparatory for the establishment of David. God is not going to forsake his people, even though he forsakes Saul. And God in his goodness allows some success until David is ultimately completely established as king. Conclusion and takeaways. First, we're to understand the historical significance of the events that have taken place in the nation of Israel and how God has been at work through the ages and still is at work today. It is God who has raised up and removed the kings in the day of the Old Testament and is still true today. We're to see that Israel was to be a role model for the nations of the world, that other nations were to see the value of placing their faith and trust in God as well. Furthermore, Israel was to be a dispenser of God's justice. One nation is responsible for another nation under God. It was appropriate during the time of World War II, that many nations band together to fight against Hitler and his cohorts. It was the right thing to do. It was evil that he was promoting in the innocent destruction of so many Jews. You think of those gas chambers. It is the responsibility of a government to be moral and to stand for truth And to be an instrument of God's righteousness and justice and holiness. And hold the nations that are defiant and evil and corrupt and destroy their people to make them accountable. That's God's will for government. We're to understand the significance that a leader has for the physical, spiritual, and material well-being of a nation. We're to understand the importance of a leader submitting to the authority of God and to see their leadership as a stewardship of accomplishing God's purpose. Next, we're to see and understand what role the citizenry has to play in influencing a king for good and not for evil. Last week, we saw how the people stood up when Saul was going to destroy Jonathan, and they said, that's not right. That's not right. It's the responsibility of a godly people to demonstrate what is right and what is wrong, but in accordance with God's word, not our own desires. Samuel serves as an example to all believers of the responsibility of God's people to stand for the adherence to God's word, to proclaim boldly what God's word says, and not to allow for the excuses of disobedience. Lastly, We're to learn the spirit of prayer and compassion that we're to have towards our leaders and the patience that we must exhibit in waiting for God to bring about his will. Though Samuel was angry, he never lost compassion. He never stopped praying for Saul and for the nation. May we never lose a spirit of compassion even when we are angered by the injustices that we see. May we never stop praying for those that oppose the things of God. May we seek their repentance. May we seek their blessing. May we seek God to be glorified as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Let's pray. Almighty God, we rejoice that you are our God. You are our King. And we commit ourselves, we commit our nation, we commit our world to you. Although you don't need our authority, it belongs to you. But simply today we are acknowledging it. We are ascribing it. We are saying it is true. So Lord, have your will. Have your way. Do what you deem to be best. And Lord, help us to be a people of the word. Help us to be faithful to standing for the truths of scripture. And Lord, help us in that stand to have compassion, to be a people of prayer, and to lament the misery and the heartache that so many people are experiencing.